This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start off reading from Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article, American Jews Mobilize in Response to Deadly Building Collapse in Surfside, Florida, by Asaf Shalev and Ben Sales. As the United States woke up to news of the building collapse in Surfside, Florida, it quickly became clear that the disaster is an American tragedy. The 12-story building in the heavily Orthodox enclave near Miami Beach collapsed just before 2 a.m. Thursday as families slept in its 55 apartments just blocks from the beach. As of Thursday evening, almost 100 people are believed missing, and even as rescue efforts continue, officials fear that many of them are dead. At least one death has been confirmed. First responders pulled 35 people from the rubble and treated 10 people on the scene with at least two transported to a nearby hospital for care, officials said in a press briefing. Jewish communities across the United States mobilized as the scope of devastation became clear. By early morning, Jewish WhatsApp groups were buzzing with names of missing people and requests for prayers. As the day went on, names and photographs of people presumed to have died in the collapse, potentially among the deadliest structural disasters in American history, began circulating as well. Rabbi Sholem Lipskar of the Shul of Bal Harbor in Surfside was interviewed as he awaited information on missing congregants and worked to provide aid to the community. This is something that transcends our capacity for understanding, he said on CNN. We accept it, and we have to learn, as we do in our culture, resilience, and to move forward because challenges don't hold us back. The missing included many Jews. COL Live, an Orthodox news site that covers the Chabad Lubavitch community, published dozens of names on a list of people to pray for, some of the Hebrew names indicated that parents and children together were among the missing. The Chabad at the University of Chicago announced that the president of its student board was missing along with his girlfriend, also a college student. An online fundraiser launched by the Shul of Bell Harbor, located a mile north of the collapsed building, had raised $240,000 for more than 2,000 donors within hours. That synagogue and another nearby Chabad also put out calls for toiletries, blankets, and toys that could be distributed to survivors. Meanwhile, kosher restaurants in the area distributed food to first responders and to those who were displaced from the portion of the building that had not collapsed. The Greater Miami Jewish Federation launched a campaign to aid the victims, setting up an emergency fund to assist with immediate as well as long-term needs. Be part of the Jewish community's response, the Federation said in a mass email, help those affected by the collapse of the Champlain Towers south in Surfside, Florida. Meanwhile, though the cause is as yet unknown, local officials are beginning to address how this could have happened. This was not an act of God, Surfside Town Commissioner Eliana Salhauser told USA Today. This was not a natural disaster. Buildings don't just fall. And next from JTA, 73 congressional Democrats to Biden reverse more of Trump's Israel policies and call settlements illegal by Ron Compeyes, Washington. A letter from 73 Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives, including a number in leadership positions, 
urges President Joe Biden to make a number of moves to reverse what they call the Trump administration's abandonment of long-standing bipartisan United States policy on Israeli-Palestinian relations. Among other things, the letter sent Wednesday calls for Biden to firmly consider Israeli settlements illegal and the West Bank occupied, two things the Trump administration stated that it would no longer do. Make clear that the United States considers settlements to be inconsistent with international law by reissuing relevant State Department and U.S. Customs guidance to that effect, the letter states. It also pushes for all relevant official U.S. documents and communications to once again consistently refer to the status of the West Bank and Gaza Strip as occupied. The letter signatories include seven committee chairs, among them Representatives Rosa DeLorio, Democrat of Connecticut, who leads the powerful Appropriations Committee, and John Yarmuth, Democrat of Kentucky, who heads the Budget Committee, as well as the Assistant Speaker of the House, Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts. Seven Jewish Democrats signed the letter, including Representative John Shakovsky, Democrat of Illinois, who initiated it, the others are Representatives Alan Lowenthal of California, Andy Levin of Michigan, Sarah Jacobs of California, Yarmouth, Steve Cohen of Tennessee, and Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Donald Trump upended decades of U.S. policy in the region by recognizing the right of Israel to annex part of the West Bank, in addition to agreeing to Israel's claim to the Golan Heights and moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Biden officials have been reluctant to openly criticize Israel, wary of the tensions that beset the Obama administration when its officials publicly called out Israel over differences on policy. Biden has preferred to keep differences with Israel behind closed doors. During last month's conflict, he robustly rejected calls from the party's left to leverage assistance to Israel to pressure it to end the conflict. In a vague but significant line, the letter calls for Biden to consistently condemn in public statements any specific actions that violate the rights of either party or undermine the prospects for peace. Open airing of differences is a practice Israeli leaders and the mainstream pro-Israel community adamantly rejects. But Biden favors some of the eight specific recommendations in the letter, including a resumption of sending aid to the Palestinians and reopening a separate consulate in Jerusalem for Palestinian relations. The letter also calls on Biden to abandon Trump's peace plan, which envisioned an Israeli annexation of portions of the West Bank. It additionally urges him to pressure Israel to stop the planned eviction of Palestinian families from eastern Jerusalem, which contributed to the volatile environment that spurred last month's violent conflict between Israel and Gaza. The document reflects growing calls among Democrats to take a tougher stance with Israel, mounting against Biden's continued closeness to the state. J Street, the liberal Jewish Middle East policy group, praised the letter, noting that it came from a third of the House Democratic, uh, Democratic Caucus. Jeremy Ben-Ami, J Street's president, said in a statement that it was incumbent on the Biden administration to do everything in its power to rebuild productive ties with the Palestinian leadership and to make absolutely clear that the U.S. will not stand for illegal settlement expansion, de facto annexation, and displacement. The letter also comes as Israel's new government, led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, seeks to repair relations with Democrats eroded under former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. U.S. policy on whether the settlements are illegal according to international law has varied under different presidents.
Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter emphasized what they said was the settlement's illegality, while Ronald Reagan said he did not believe the settlements were illegal. Subsequent administrations returned to regarding the settlements as illegal, but for the most part only when officials were pressed to make clear their position. Also signing are three members of the six members of the Progressive Squad, which took the lead last month in criticizing Israel in Congress. Representatives Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, Ayanna Presley, Democrat of Massachusetts, and Jamal Bowman, Democrat of New York. Notably, three squad members did not sign. Representatives Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, and Cori Bush of Missouri. The letter emphasizes support for the two-state outcome, something that Tlaib rejects, favoring a binational state. Next from JTA, this organization was supposed to unite Jews. A debate over Black Lives Matter may fuel its demise. By Ron Campeas and Asaf Shalev. The organization that pioneered the Jewish Civil Rights Alliance with black Americans may lose its independence in part, insiders say, because of its support for the Black Lives Matter movement. The Jewish Council for Public Affairs, the grassroots-driven Community Relations Network, is in talks about its future with the Jewish Federations of North America, the umbrella body for the Federation's network. Neither the JCPA nor Federations would comment for this story, but some insiders say the likely outcome is the incorporation of the JCPA into the Federation umbrella. Such a move would end JCPA's 75-year history of consensus-driven civil rights advocacy and leave standing a single voice that is deeply beholden to wealthy donors to speak out on behalf of Jews on national issues. Other insiders say the talks are still open-ended and there's no clear outcome in sight. They emphasize that the talks are an exploration and not a negotiation. They're being led by Eric Fingerhut, the Jewish Federation's CEO, and David Bohm, JCPA's lay chairman. It's not clear if there is any deadline for a resolution. Conditions in U.S. politics and the funding and leadership situations of the two groups make a potential merger seem practical on many levels, but the possibility of one has startled some stalwarts of the JCPA who see it as the one of the few remaining places in the Jewish community where unity is cultivated. They also fear its disappearance would bring an end to the leading role that Jewish communities have played in shaping post-World War II America. The JCPA represents the most democratic with a small d method of coming to policy decisions as a community, said Hannah Rosenthal, who for years was its executive director and subsequently served as president and CEO at one of its constituents, the Milwaukee Federation. By contrast, the Federation system, which raises money for Israel and local Jewish activities, is guided more by donors than by the grassroots, Rosenthal said. Wary of alienating big givers, a combined organization would likely be less inclined than the JCPA to tackle the sometimes controversial issues of racial justice, climate change, and stem cell research, she said. I'm not telling a secret here, but larger donors have more say over a local community in the federation system than the smaller donor, Rosenthal said. The Jewish Telegraphic Agency interviewed more than a dozen people for this story, including the directors of local Jewish community relations councils, the backbone of the JCC JCPA network, and former JCPA staffers. Many declined to speak on the record because of the sensitivity of the topic. 
Some of the insiders say the trigger for the JFNA's efforts to, uh, effort to effectively take over the JCPA came in August when JCPA signed an open letter in the New York Times declaring Black Lives Matter, along with some 600 Jewish organizations. Others say the talks already were underway. The ad infuriated some Federation officials who thought it was reckless to endorse a movement despised by Republicans and has been accused of anti-Israel politics. These officials also worried that the ad threw into question JFNA's hallmark, nonpartisanship, even though the JCPA and Jewish federations are separate national groups. Local federations and Jewish community relations councils have a symbiotic relationship. Virtually every local federation funds its JCRC to a degree, and all but a dozen JCRCs are fully incorporated into their federation. That leaves the Federation's fundraising vulnerable to a disgruntled, to disgruntled donors if a community relations council adopts a divisive opinion. Traditionally, the model was meant to achieve the exact opposite and keep fundraising separate from government and community relations, said Shaul Kellner, a Vanderbilt University professor who studies the American, uh, contemporary American Jewish community, but that model has grown difficult to sustain, he said. As the country has become more polarized, so has the Jewish community. That has made the JCPA's job much harder, Kellner said. During the polarizing debate over the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, for example, federations and their JCRCs agonized over whether to support or reject the deal. Those close to the JCPA say the community needs a national organization adept at forging alliances with other groups and providing a Jewish voice in shaping civil society. Ron Halber, executive director of the JCRC of Greater Washington, said the federations, which are more susceptible to donor pressures, are necessarily less agile. An independent JCPA will shield federations from some of the very, very difficult political issues and divisive issues, Halber said. The JCPA was founded as the National Jewish Community Relations Advisory Council in 1944, by groups eager for the community to speak in a single voice about what would become known as the Holocaust. In the late 1940s, the group led advocacy to end discriminatory immigration policies. By 1950, its focus was civil rights, and it joined with the NAACP to found the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, which helped spearhead desegregation and voting rights activism. The organization changed its name in 1997 to JCPA. The umbrella body was a major force through the 1980s, uh, crafting consensus policies on immigration, civil rights, pro-Israel advocacy in the wake of the 1967 Six-Day War, and through the 70s and 80s on Soviet Jewry. Its process to make formal statements is arduous, involving months of debate and buy-in from national agencies and constituent JCRCs, which currently number 125. It culminates in a lengthy voting process at the annual JCPA conference. The process is meant to assure credible consensus on issues like Israel, civil rights, hate crimes, and more recently climate change and stem cell research. It was even useful when there was no consensus to be had. In 2015, JCPA released a non-committal statement on the Iran nuclear deal. Polls showed the majority of American Jewish community supporting the agreement, but also a significant portion against. That process, however, is increasingly out of step with America's polarized politics, which are reflected in a Jewish community divided between a largely liberal majority and a highly vocal and increasingly activist conservative minority.
Donors more often prefer to give to ideologically driven groups, making JCPA's emphasis on consensus building less attractive, insiders say. JCPA's financial disclosures show a decline in donations from nearly $4 million in 2015 to $2.4 million in 2019, the latest year for which data are available. JCPA's struggles have not just been financial. It also lost at least one member. The American Jewish Committee last year quietly removed itself from the JCPA's national roster, which now includes 16 groups. An AJC spokesman did not return a request for comment. And more recently, the JCPA has been without a CEO. The most recent person to hold the job, David Bernstein, left at the beginning of this year and now leads the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which of late has been warning about the dangers of critical race theory, an educational framework that claims that racism is embedded in legal systems and policies. Jewish federations, by comparison, have a stable budget and is a financial behemoth that brought in $270 million in 2019, according to tax records. Some $212 million of that money went out in grants to local federations and other Jewish initiatives. It also has a relatively new CEO in Fingerhut, who joined the organization two years ago, bringing with him insiders say a conservative approach to public relations. They point to his years as CEO of Hillel International, where he cracked down on controversial messaging, particularly on Israel. That included inhibiting cooperation on campuses between Hillel and J Street U, the liberal Mideast policy group that is often critical of the Israeli government. A number of directors of independent JCRCs said that they were watching the talks with interest, but many noted that the national JCPA has not, had not influenced their agenda for years. National organizations find it increasingly difficult to find common ground, evidenced in the infighting and dissension that have divided the conference of presidents of major American Jewish organizations. One size fits all no longer serves Jewish communities, said Jeremy Burton, the Boston JCRC director. The issues and relationships and partnerships and where to land on those issues in uh, our increasingly fractured partisan national conversation is different for Boston than it is for Houston, he said. JCRC officials in St. Louis, San Francisco, and Minnesota had similar takes. The JCPA's added value, said Steve Guttow, who directed the JCPA from 2005 to 2015, is in giving voice to the Jewish street. The JCRC constituents that include synagogues, Jewish fraternal societies, grassroots activists, and veteran organizations that engage in broader community activism. This was begun in the 1940s, this idea that there would be some good to having certain issues looked at by a group of people that were tied to the Federation in one way or another, but also were probably more involved with what's going on in the streets of the Jewish community and levels that aren't just about giving, he said. The polarization of the American polity, coupled with the financial crisis of 2008, made Jewish community relations a harder sell for fundraisers, insiders said. It made more sense for donors to give a Jewish group on the left or on the right that was wholly dedicated to their politics rather than a body like a JCRC or a JCPA that would necessarily embrace policies that they might not prioritize or even oppose. The process accelerated JCRCs being absorbed into local federations. The civil rights protests that erupted after a police officer murdered George Floyd, an African-American, in Minneapolis in May 2020 exposed these divisions in the Jewish community. 
Then the Ark, a liberal uh, Jewish social justice group, spearheaded the August 28th ad supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Its language was unequivocal. uh, unequivocal. The Black Lives Matter movement is the current-day civil rights movement in this country, and it is our best chance at equity and justice. By supporting this movement, we can build a country that fulfills the promise of freedom, unity, and safety for all of us, no exceptions. The National Jewish Establishment, however, was wary of the movement ever since the Movement for Black Lives, an activist group that represents some but not all groups under the BLM umbrella called Israel an apartheid state and accused it of genocide. Since then, a number of BLM movement leaders have been harshly critical of Israel, drawing parallels between the Palestinian struggle and their own. Groups, Jewish groups who engage with Black Lives Matter note that the movement is decentralized and that individual members and chapters do not necessarily endorse or even care about criticism of Israel. They see the movement as having evolved into a set of ideals related to racial justice rather than a specific agenda. In its end-of-year report for 2020, JCPA boasted that it was standing with the black community to advocate for ending structural racism in the United States. At the same time, it acknowledged that there had been questions and concerns about anti-Semitism within the Black Lives Matter movement and said it had produced webinars and resources addressing those complaints. An insider faulted the JCPA for a recent set of resolutions embracing voting rights reforms that are endorsed only by Democrats, as opposed to advocacy for a less objectionable course of action like joining nonpartisan get-out-the-vote drives. But voting rights activists, alarmed by a battery of new laws advanced by Republicans at the state level that would restrict access, see little use for ostensible neutrality. Fingerhut, representing the Federation movement in the discussion with JCPA, is said to be leveraging the fact that the vast majority of constituent JCRCs are wholly Federation-run, as well as his influence over the donors. Fingerhut's critics say he has a tendency to crowd out dissent. His defenders say his leadership style comes with a track record of getting things done. At Hillel, Fingerhut doubled funding and set clear parameters on Israel policy. And as JFNA's head during the pandemic, Fingerhut helped wrangle from Congress and the Trump administration massive relief for nonprofits. Fingerhut, who in the 1990s served a term representing Ohio as a moderate Democrat in Congress, is a stickler for nonpartisanship. The JCPA still endeavors to find common ground. Its most recent resolutions included an urging to advocate for the Muslim Uyghurs under siege in China and to advance the recent normalization agreement between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Halber said the JCPA is a platform for networking. Some of the Washington JCRC's best recent initiatives, he said, had come out of talking with other JCRC's a peer-to-peer program that sends Jewish students to public and private schools to talk about their lives as Jewish teens was modeled in St. Louis, another that reviews public school curricula on Israel, Judaism, and the Holocaust was modeled in San Francisco. That kind of schmoozing would continue at least informally, but it wouldn't be the same as a forum where they can exchange ideas, Halber said, particularly in a time of crisis. With polarization, with the Jewish community in a society where there is the undermining of democratic norms, with the need to bring people together, with the need for Israel advocacy, more than ever with the need for intergroup relations with the rise of anti-Semitism, this should be the golden age of the JCRC movement, he said. 
Rosenthal, the former JCPA executive director, said the best protection against anti-Semitism are the alliances forged through the responsive community relations that federations are less able to handle. She recalled as director of the Milwaukee Federation convening an interfaith event at a synagogue after the 2018 massacre of 11 Jewish worshippers in Pittsburgh. We called upon the faith leaders of other faiths to come up on the bima, and they came, and they kept coming, and they kept coming, she said. And I started crying, and I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor, and I'm looking at all these people who came up to say we stand in solidarity with you. We have your back. And that could not have happened without a robust community relations strategy. Steve Windmuller, a professional of Jewish communal studies at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, who has directed the Federation in Albany, New York, and the JCRC in Los Angeles, said past crises, including the Six-Day War and the Civil Rights Movement, were moments where a single Jewish voice proved effective. Such moments will continue in the future, he said. The community has to figure out how to effectively message what our interests are, especially at a time when we see so much anti-Semitism and the isolation of the Jewish community from the larger public, Windmuller said. And next from JTA, group that removed Israeli food truck from event apologizes. Our actions were ignorant and inexcusable, by Felissa Kramer. Three days after igniting a social media firestorm by removing an Israeli food truck from a festival, a Philadelphia group has apologized and vowed to make up for our mistakes with the help from our community. Eat Up the Borders, which showcases immigrant chefs and international cuisine, said it rejected the charges of anti-Semitism from around the globe after removing Moshava because of local criticism of the Israeli government. We want to be very clear that we do not support anti-Semitism or allow anti-Semitism in our spaces, the group said in a statement released Tuesday evening on its website and social media. Our actions were ignorant and inexcusable. Meanwhile, Sunflower Philly, the community venue that was to have hosted the event, issued its own apology, saying it had canceled the event to prevent any kind of discriminatory activity in our space after promising to take a hands-on approach with third-party event organizers in the future. Sunflower Philly deeply regrets and apologizes to Moshava, our neighbors, vendors, and the Jewish community for our part in a very unfortunate turn of events the group posted Wednesday to Instagram. The Eat Up the Border statement also offered additional context about the circumstances that led to Moshava's removal. After critics of Israel had challenged Moshava's inclusion in a previous event, Eat Up the Borders recruited a Palestinian food vendor for this month's lineup, according to the statement. After that vendor backed out, citing time constraints, the group said it feared that including Moshava could lead to a boycott or a potentially unsafe protest. We now see that excluding any particular vendor in the name of trying to protect them was the wrong decision, the statement said. We did what we thought was best in the, movement, in the moment, but we failed. The group said without offering details that it has cooperated with authorities to answer any of their concerns. The statement also said that Eat Up the Borders is in touch with leaders from the Jewish and Palestinian community to aid us in our growth and further the conversation. Moshava, which sought to claim uh, which sought to calm criticism of Eat Up the Borders last Sunday, 
told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency Tuesday that it had not been in touch with the group since Saturday, uh, Sunday morning. The Eat Up the Borders statement drew mixed reaction on Instagram, where only an ex- excerpt had been published initially. Some Jews, uh, some Jewish commentators saying it represented a meaningful apology, and others rejecting it for listing Jews alongside others facing discrimination. Better than no apology, but maybe you could have done it with less of an all-lives-matter feel. One person wrote on the initial post before Eat Up the Borders removed it and replaced it with a new post with a complete statement. It is hard to understand why you are apologizing to groups other than the Jewish-Israeli community that you discriminated against. The saga is being closely followed in foodie corners of the Jewish world. Elon Kornblum, who runs the Great Kosher Restaurant Foodies Facebook group, shared Sunflower's statement on Wednesday and wrote that he would accept their apology in hopes they learn from the episode. He also said the situation had an upside. Sometimes an unfortunate situation turns into a blessing in disguise, he wrote in the public group. I can see from the posts, comments, their social platform, this was the best publicity money can't even buy for this food truck. Next from JTA. A black and Jewish Bible scholar will lead Reconstructionist rabbinical school in a first for American Jewish movements. The Reconstructionist movement has chosen a Jew of color to lead its rabbinical college, a first for a major American Jewish movement. Hebrew Bible scholar Amanda Beckenstein Mibuvi, who is black, will lead the Reconstructionist rabbinical college just outside of Philadelphia, the movement's umbrella organization, Reconstructing Judaism announced this week. She will become Vice President of Academic Affairs after the, uh, that's the school's highest post and she'll report to Reconstructing Judaism's CEO, Rabbi Deborah Waxman. Mubuvi is neither a rabbi nor previously involved with the Reconstructionist movement, although she told Waxman in an online conversation that her formative experience of Jewish communal life had taken place in a conservative synagogue that had a Reconstructionist rabbi. In that conversation, she said the diversity of the American Jewish community is important to reflect in rabbinical training. She said her vision for rabbinic education is that it equips students to envision, embody, and bring forth new possibilities for the world, to root them in Jewish tradition and equip them to engage in other, uh, others in that tradition, in all of the diverse embodiments and social locations that people are bringing to Jewish community now. The 44-year-old is currently a faculty member at High Point University, a liberal arts college in North Carolina, where she helped found the school's minor in Jewish studies. Mubuvi holds a Ph.D. in religion from Duke University and, in 2016, published a book titled Belonging in Genesis, Biblical Israel and the Politics of Identity Formation. Her online biography says she grew up Jewish in the black church. The Reconstructionist movement, which seeks to evolve its Jewish teachings to fit contemporary times, is the smallest and most progressive of the four major streams of American Judaism, including Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. Mubuvi is the second Jew of color that the movement has hired in recent months for prominent positions. In January, it brought on Rabbi Sandra Lawson, who had been the Hillel rabbi at Elon University, also in North Carolina, to become its first-ever director of racial diversity, equity, and inclusion. Lawson told The Forward this week that Mabuvi had stood out among a large pool of applicants for the leadership position. 
The fact that the best candidate also happens to be a Jew of color shows that this is the direction the Jewish community is going, Lawson said. There are going to be incredibly talented people in the Jewish community who are not white. And next from JTA, a Supreme Court decision allowing a Catholic foster agency to discriminate splits Jewish groups by Ron Compeyas, Washington. A key Supreme Court decision on religious freedoms earned praise from Orthodox Jewish groups and has more liberal groups breathing a sigh of relief that its scope was narrow. On Thursday, the court issued, this would have been last Thursday, that is, a unanimous decision overturning Philadelphia's policy of refusing to work with a Catholic agency that will not place foster children with same-sex parents. Jewish groups had filed friend-of-the-court briefs on both sides of the case, known as Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. Orthodox groups driven by concerns about religious liberty sided with Catholic social services. Many cheered the ruling. Today's historic ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court is of critical importance to the American Orthodox Jewish community, Nathan Diamant, the Orthodox Union's Washington director, said in a statement. As a minority faith community in the United States, the robust legal protection for religious practice is an existential issue for us. The Orthodox Union had joined a slate of Christian groups defending the agency. Liberal and civil rights Jewish groups, meanwhile, expressed disappointment, but also relief that the court's decision was narrow and unlikely to impinge on other church-state separations. This Supreme Court decision is a devastating loss for Philadelphia children in foster care who are harmed when the religious beliefs of government-funded agencies override the best interests of the children, said a statement from the National Council of Jewish Women, one of several groups to file a joint brief on behalf of Philadelphia. The case had been viewed as a potential watershed moment in which the court's expanded right-wing majority could deliver a sweeping win for the religious right by overturning a 1990 decision that allows the government to restrict certain religious practices as long as the government's intent is not discriminatory. Instead, the decision in Fulton took care not to overturn decades of precedent, potentially allowing the three liberal justices to sign on, Meanwhile, the court's three most conservative judges criticized the decision for its timidity in a concurring opinion. The majority opinion was authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, who has endeavored recently to preserve the court's reputation as above politics in a polarized society in which Democrats in particular are seething at Republican maneuvers to entrench the court's conservative majority. Roberts wrote that because screening criteria vary among Philadelphia's fostering agencies and the city allowed exemptions to its policies, singling out the Catholic agency for its specific criteria was discriminatory. So long as the government can achieve its interests in a manner that does not burden religion, it must do so, Roberts wrote. That conclusion heartened Orthodox groups that, like Catholic social services, may see requirements to serve LGBTQ families as infringing on their religious beliefs. Philadelphia's policy locked religious agencies out of the foster care system unless they were willing to openly violate their religious beliefs, and children who needed caring families paid the price, the Coalition for Jewish Values said in a statement. Agudath Israel of America, which led a growing uh, a grouping of Orthodox groups in a friend of the court, brief, gave the decision qualified praise, noting that its narrow scope stopped well short of delivering the changes that conservative and religious organizations had hoped would happen. 
We are gratified that the court has ruled that the city of Philadelphia violated CSS's free exercise rights, said Rabbi Chaim Dovid's Weibel, the group's executive vice president. But we are disappointed that the court did not use this opportunity to overturn Employment Division versus Smith. We can only hope that soon the court will revisit Smith, which has had a detrimental impact on religious freedom in America. The 1990 Smith decision upholding Oregon's right to deny unemployment benefits to Native Americans who had been fired for instigating, uh, for ingesting peyote as part of a religious ritual, held that a government may apply laws that effectively discriminate against religious practice as long as the laws do not specifically target religious practice. Two conservative justices on the court in the concurrence with Roberts' ruling said that it should have gone farther and overturned Smith. The OU's Diamant said in an interview he too hoped for Smith to be overturned. But he said in an, uh, that a unanimous decision encompassing the court's three liberal justices was no small thing. Jewish groups that backed Philadelphia expressed disappointment but also noted with relief that Roberts ruled narrowly and did not touch Smith. The Anti-Defamation League, which led an amicus brief that included Ben the Ark, Jewish Women International, Keshet, the National Council of Jewish Women, and Trua, said the ruling underscored the urgency of passing bills under consideration that would ban discrimination against LGBTQ individuals seeking to adopt or foster children. Although this is a very narrow ruling, we must not lose sight of the fact that discrimination pervades the child welfare system throughout the country, the ADL said in a statement. In 2018, the ADL took up the cause of a Jewish family in South Carolina barred by a state-sanctioned agency from fostering because of their faith. The reform movement separately said it too was disappointed in the ruling but emphasized that it did not grant agencies a broad right to discriminate. We continue to hold that social service providers should not be allowed to choose whom to serve when receiving government funding as allowing discrimination to supersede provision of social services will endanger lives and harm the most vulnerable, it said in a statement. And next from JTA, Netanyahu finally agrees to leave the prime minister's residence in three weeks. After being blasted by critics, for staying in the Israeli Prime Minister's residence well over a week past his ousting from the role. Benjamin Netanyahu has agreed to leave in another three weeks. He and his successor, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, released a joint statement last week that says Netanyahu will depart by July 10th, and until then no official state meetings will be held there. Netanyahu had stayed in power through a series of close elections over two years, and multiple corruption cases that made him the first prime minister to be indicted while in office. After 12 straight years in the role, a diverse coalition of parties ousted him from power less than two weeks ago, and he promptly called the group, quote, the greatest election fraud the country has ever seen. His tone, similar to former President Donald Trump after the U.S. presidential election in 2020, had some critics fearing that Israel could be rocked by public violence similar to the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol building. Netanyahu also continued to host foreign dignitaries at the residence, posting a photo last week with former U.S. Ambassador to the United States Nikki Haley there. An anti-Netanyahu protest group vowed to petition Israel's high court to force him out. 
Haaretz reported that Netanyahu has shredded several important documents at the residence and that officials there were investigating the matter. Netanyahu denied shredding anything crucial to the transition of power. For now, Bennett is living in his home in the city of Ranana near Tel Aviv. In its first weekend in power, the new ruling coalition led by Bennett, dubbed the Change Bloc, ordered an inquiry into the Mount Meron disaster in which 45 people died at a gathering of thousands of Haredi Orthodox Jews celebrating the Lagba Omer holiday in April. Bennett also reiterated his hardline stance against supporting any kind of nuclear deal with Iran after that country elected a new president who has been sanctioned previously by the U.S. for allowing human rights issues. Next, Quentin Tarantino opens up about learning Hebrew, his life in Tel Aviv, and being an Abba. Yes, Quentin Tarantino is learning Hebrew at the same speed as his toddler. The famed non-Jewish American uh, director, who has been married to Israeli singer and actress Daniela Pick since 2018, opened up Tuesday night on Jimmy Kimmel Live about his new life in Israel, which included a longer-than-expected stint in Tel Aviv during the COVID-19 pandemic. The idea was that we would spend three to four months in Tel Aviv, three to four months in Los Angeles, and then COVID hit, he told the late-night host. So three to four months became nine, 12 months. Tarantino added that he has learned several words in Hebrew, but not enough to hold a conversation. He watches baby shows in Hebrew with his son, especially one he compared to a Hebrew version of Sesame Street, though he's broadening his Hebrew vocabulary. Kimmel asked how his 15-month-old son, Leo, not named for a famous actor, was doing, and Tarantino said he can only say one word, Abba, Hebrew for dad, and a third of the time he means me, Tarantino quipped. Honduras formally moved its Israeli embassy to Jerusalem Thursday, becoming the fourth country to make the move. Prime Minister Neftali Bennett hosted Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez in a ceremony that also included the foreign ministers of the two countries. According to the Times of Israel, Hernandez said in a speech that since he took office in 2014, Honduras has become one of the two countries in Latin America and one of the five in the world that most often abstains from the resolutions by international bodies that Israel opposes. Bennett said in response, under your leadership, Honduras consistently stands by Israel in international institutions when it is not always popular and sometimes it also involves paying a price. This is a testimony to our friendship. The two countries also signed a series of cooperation agreements on agriculture, health, education, and technology. Following talks with Bennett's predecessor, Benjamin Netanyahu, Honduras announced its plan to move, uh, to move its embassy last year. The Central American nation of nearly 10 million is the first country to make the move under the auspices of the new government that ousted Netanyahu earlier this month after his 12 years in power. The United States, Guatemala, and Kosovo had previously moved their embassies. Though Israel's government infrastructure has long been stationed in Israel, countries have historically avoided enshrining the city as Israel's capital in deference to Palestinian leaders who want the eastern part of the city to be the capital of a future Palestinian state. In Slovakia, a retired non-Jewish educator teaches Roma teens about the Holocaust at Jewish cemeteries. An activist attempting to preserve Jewish cemeteries in Slovakia has recruited several Roma teenagers to help with the task. Vladimir Spanik, 73, 
involved the teenagers in cleaning up the Jewish cemetery of Vinodol, a town located some 40 miles east of the capital, Bratislava, Reuters reported last week. Spanik has been in volunteering to help motivate the teens to improve their socioeconomic situation. Part of it was that they wanted to help an old man, said the retired educator, who is neither Jewish nor Roma. But for me, the main point is for them to learn about the Holocaust and the extremely painful moment it has been for so many Jews and Roma. One of the teenagers, Franco Lacatos, said part of the work is digging and locating headstones that sank into the soft ground or became overgrown with weeds and climbing plants. The absence of fencing around most Jewish cemeteries in Eastern Europe contributes to vandalism. In 2019, dozens of tombstones were destroyed at the Jewish cemetery in Namastovo in Slovakia. What is now Slovakia was home to about 100,000 Jews before the Holocaust. Today, the local Jewish community has about 3,000 members. Jewish organizations have enough resources for preserving about 150 Jewish cemeteries among the approximately 750 that are scattered in that country, their leaders have said. In addition to about 6 million Jews, the Nazis and their collaborators killed between 200,000 and 500,000 Roma people during World War II, according to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Next from JTA, Elvis Presley was Jewish? A grave marker locked away for four decades confirms it by Dan Fellner. Memphis, Tennessee. The large crate sat unopened in a 20,000-square-foot warehouse here for more than four decades, concealing a little-known fact about one of America's cultural icons. Inside was the headstone of Elvis Presley's mother, Gladys, which had been stored in the Graceland archives along with 1.5 million other items since 1977. And on the upper left side of the long unseen marker designed by Elvis himself is a Star of David. Yes, the king of rock and roll had Jewish roots. The headstone, which was taken from storage only in 2018, is now on display at the sprawling complex in Memphis where Elvis lived from 1957 until his untimely death 20 years later at the age of 42. It sits in Graceland's Meditation Garden, just outside the mansion and a few feet from Elvis' own grave. Stories of Elvis's Jewish heritage have long been in circulation, but when it comes to a legend like Presley, whose death is not even considered settled fact in some quarters, it's not always easy to separate fact from fiction. With the headstone now on public display and an accompanying sign proclaiming Gladys's Jewish heritage, any lingering doubts can finally be erased. There was a lot of mystery surrounding it, said Angie Marchese, Graceland's Vice President of Archives and Exhibits, and the one who came up with the idea of unveiling Gladys's headstone on the 60th anniversary of her death, partly to dispel doubts about Elvis's Jewish lineage. The star is on it, so it answered a lot of questions that were out there. Marchese says Elvis's maternal great-great-grandmother was a Jewish woman named Nancy Burdine. Little is known about Burdine, but it's believed her family immigrated to America from what is now Lithuania around the time of the, the American Revolution. According to Ancestry.com, Burdine was born in Mississippi in 1826 and died in 1887. Burdine's great-granddaughter was Gladys Love Smith, who married Vernon Presley in 1933. 
Two years later, Gladys gave birth to Elvis in Tupelo, Mississippi. The family moved to Memphis when Elvis was 13. The Presleys once lived in an apartment directly below the family of Rabbi Alfred Fruchter, the first principal of the Memphis Hebrew Academy. The rabbi's son, Harold, who now lives in Maryland, said that Elvis actually served as the Fruchter's Shabbos Goy, a non-Jew who performs household tasks for observant Jews that are normally forbidden on the Jewish Sabbath. Fruchter said his parents never had even an inkling that Elvis had Jewish roots. If they had, they would never have considered asking him to be a Shabbos Goy, Fruchter said. Elvis was especially close to his mother, who died of heart failure in 1958 at the age of 46. Initially, Elvis had buried her in a public cemetery in Memphis. Her headstone was marked with a cross. But Marchese says that six years later, Elvis replaced the headstone with one designed to his specifications. The new marker featured a star of David on one side and a cross on the other, along with the words, Sunshine of Our Home, engraved between. What prompted Elvis to include the Star of David on his mother's headstone? Marchese isn't exactly sure or even when Elvis learned of his mother's Jewish heritage, but he says the Jewish faith gave him comfort when he was seeking answers to help him deal with her passing. Following an attempt to steal Elvis's body from a Memphis cemetery, Vernon Presley had the remains of his son and his wife moved to Graceland for security reasons. Gladys's grave marker with the Star of David went into storage and there it remained until Marchese suggested it be put on public display. We thought it would be a great way of honoring her Jewish heritage as well as honoring her, said Marchese, who had, has worked at Graceland for 32 years and is one of the world's preeminent experts on the Presley family. We think it's what Elvis would have wanted. There is evidence that Elvis's Jewish lineage meant more to him than just a symbol on a headstone. He gave generously over the years to a variety of Jewish organizations, including the Memphis Jewish Community Center, a donation honored with a plaque that hangs in Graceland today. Elvis's personal library included several books on Judaism and Jewish history. During the final years of his life, Elvis was frequently photographed wearing necklaces with a Star of David and the Hebrew word Chai, which means life. The Chai necklace is kept in a cabinet at Graceland next to the keys to the singer's famed 1955 pink Cadillac. Never one to be accused of subtlety, Elvis had the necklace designed with 17 diamonds. He purchased the jewelry in 1976, one year before he died. He would often make a joke, I don't want to get left out of heaven on a technicality, Mark Chasey said, so he would wear a Star of David, a Chai, and he would also wear a cross. He wanted to keep all his bases covered. Gladys's heritage notwithstanding, Presley was raised in the Assembly of God Church, but he explored other religions as he got older and began to struggle with physical and mental issues. He was always searching for answers as to why he was chosen to be who he was, Marchese said. I think he found some of the answers through different religions. There have been suggestions that Elvis's handlers didn't want his Jewish heritage known to the public, fearing it might prompt some of his southern fans to abandon him. But Marchesi says there is no evidence of that. It was not something he was shying away from, he said. He would be photographed in these necklaces, and he would make donations to Jewish community centers throughout his entire life. And next from the opinion section at JTA, for Democrats, it's okay to agree to disagree on Israel by Karen Adler and Ada Horwich. The two of us have spent most of our lives working for two causes. Israel and the Democratic Party. 
For a long time, we experienced very little dissonance or disagreement. If you were pro-Israel, you were most likely a Democrat. If you were a Democrat, you were most likely pro-Israel. While the Democratic Party's 2020 platform is unambiguously pro-Israel, as it has been in years past, there are Democrats who are critical of Israel and want the U.S. government to influence Israel to change its, change its policies. Some of that criticism, such as recent comments by Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota and other members of the squad, has created challenges for the Democratic leadership who are tasked with keeping the party unified. There are plenty of reasons for these changing attitudes among Democrats, but there is no doubt about the Democrats' fundamental position on Israel. As Representative Jerry Nadler of New York, the dean of the Jewish Congressional Democrats, wrote recently, on Israel, there exists a broad mainstream consensus around a number of core principles. Republicans see an opportunity to capitalize on controversies about Israel among Democrats. If they can delegitimize criticism of Israel, their thinking goes, they can skew political giving their way, damage intra-party relationships among Democrats, and undermine the broad-based multiracial coalition needed to achieve Democrats' goals like fighting climate change, addressing income inequality, healing social and racial divides, and restoring America's integrity internationally. In pursuit of their obje objectives, some Republicans employ accusations of anti-Semitism as a political weapon. They paint all Democrats with the same broad brush, from progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to moderates like Elaine Luria. All the while, they continue to enable true anti-Semites like those who assaulted Congress waving QAnon flags and wearing sweatshirts glorifying the Holocaust. The favorite tactic of these Republicans is to manipulate anti-Israel sentiment and conflate criticism of Israeli policies with anti-Semitism. The challenge for Democrats is to deconflate them and disentangle issues related to Israel from issues related to anti-Semitism. To meet this challenge, we must learn to avoid labels. The pro-Israel community extends from the left to the right. Harsh criticism of Israel may be difficult to hear. We may not like some of the language used to describe Israeli policies, but that doesn't automatically make it anti-Semitic. Yitzhak Rabin once said, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to contain over the long term. If we don't want to get to apartheid, a million and a half more Arabs inside a Jewish state. Would we have called him an anti-Semite? We must also learn not to automatically label anti-Zionists as anti-Semites. Anti-Zionism is not necessarily anti-Semitic in any more than opposition to a Palestinian state necessarily derives from hatred of Palestinians. We are Zionists, and we believe in the Jewish people's right to hold a, to a homeland. At the same time, there are those who oppose Zionism because they hold it writ large responsible for the occupation of and systemic discrimination against Palestinians. While anti-Zionist views are not prima facie anti-Semitic, they do cross the line if they rely on anti-Semitic tropes or deny the right to self-determination for Jews alone. And when they cross the line, we must call them out. We have no patience with anti-Semitism on the left any more than we do with anti-Semitism on the right. We also insist on consistency from both the left and the right. In progressive policy circles, there is a growing focus on equality and human rights in the Israeli-Palestinian arena. 
This is a good thing so long as the principle of equality is applied on all levels, from personal rights to national rights. Just as Israelis and Palestinians must have equal human rights, civil rights, and civil liberties, so too must both Israelis and Palestinians have the right to self-determination. The two of us continue to devote ourselves to Israel and to the Democratic Party. We do not see the differing and even conflicting views on Israel as liabilities. Indeed, we see them as assets. They afford us opportunities to build relationships across the democratic political spectrum, and this enhances our ability to help Israel and combat anti-Semitism. Karen Adler is a philanthropist and democratic activist in New York. Ada Horwich lives in Los Angeles and is on the executive committee of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. And another opinion piece through JTA, Gay Jews Shouldn't Have to Choose Between Their Pride and Their Zionism by Ethan Felson. To everything there is a season. June Pride, uh, June is Pride season, one where LGBTQ people proudly refuse to choose between our identities and our demand for the freedom to live equally and without fear. A wider bridge which builds meaningful relationships between LGBTQ people in North America and Israel has always stood for our ability to celebrate all our identities without being forced into boxes. This year is no exception, and this year it's especially personal to me. Just last week, I was saddened to see vile anti-Semitic hate against Manny's, a cherished establishment in San Francisco, when it was vandalized with Zionist pigs to intimidate the owner and like-minded Jews for their Zionism. We stand with Manny, a wider bridge trip alum, as he refuses to choose between his LGBTQ identity and his Zionism. Another friend of mine and a wider bridge recently saw her synagogue vandalized with swastikas. A non-Jewish member of our wider bridge family has been verbally attacked just for saying that he likes to travel to Israel. On campus, Jewish students, including LGBTQ activists, are being bullied and feel forced to take a side in a conflict taking place on the other side of the world. In Israel, we've seen bigots run for and win seats in the Knesset on anti-LGBTQ platforms, calling themselves proud homophobes. On social media, at conferences and rallies, friends of Israel are routinely attacked with slurs about pinkwashing. With all the progress made by the LGBTQ community over the past few decades, it is easy to forget that most of Pride's history has been a season of protest. It began in 1969 with the Stonewall Riots, where brave individuals, including trans, black, brown heroes, stood up to police brutality. It continued with our communities demanding an end to discrimination in the workplace and in housing and forcing our leaders to face AIDS, the AIDS crisis head on. That spirit of protest and courage must stay alive today. We must refuse to choose one identity over another, stay in solidarity with those who feel forced to choose between their LGBTQ identity and their anti-Semitism and refuse to live in fear. Nobody should have to choose between their activism and their safety. We are proud to support Israel, not in spite of it, but because of our progressive values. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.